Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 14 in the book of Hebrews titled, The Unchangeable Character of God's Promise, from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. I'm your host, Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, this is an incredible section where we talk about the character of God's promise, you know, who it is that, that gives promises, and it's, it's very powerful and encouraging for Christians. Can you give us a brief overview before we read the verses and go through verse by verse? Sure, I really could sum up the, uh, the whole point of this section in one word, and that is hope. The author wants the um, uh, Christians who read what he wrote to be filled with hope, or another word would be encouragement or consolation which is uh, a strong confidence in the midst of storms even, and we'll, we'll talk about an anchor, uh, storms of life, spiritual storms, physical storms, financial storms, through the various things we go, that the future is bright based on the promises of God. And so the author is going to give us a sense of the certainty of those promises. Mm-hmm. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by him to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So I want to ask you the first question it has to do with the very tiny word, but it's often significant, the word for in verse 14. For when God made a promise, it's connecting back. What's the connection between uh, what we were talking about before in verse 12 and then now verse 13? Well, let's, yeah, let's go back really to the beginning of the chapter, and that is the idea that um, you know we're dealing with some Jewish professors of faith in Christ who are um, under strong pressure to turn their backs on Christ. I mean, over and over in this book of Hebrews, there's a sense of people wanting to quit. They're, they want to quit the Christian life. They want to quit running this race. They want to quit the new covenant. They want to go back to old covenant Judaism. They want to go back to a different life. They want to quit Jesus, basically. And the author does not want them to do that. He wants them to keep running this race. And so he's, he's exhorting them to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. So you have to keep running this race. And so he doesn't want them to quit. And so he talks with great uh, language, terrifying language, about uh, people who turn their backs on Jesus after having run with him for a while, turn their backs on Jesus and, and uh, expose him to public disgrace as though they're saying he's no savior at all. He's not my savior. Well, I thought you were a Christian. Not anymore. Uh, that, that exposes Jesus to public disgrace as though he's being crucified all over again. And so he uses strong language saying that people who do that are like a, a field that's worthless, that has thorns and thistles and is in danger of being cursed and in the end will be burned. 
But he's saying, no, I'm thinking that's not happening in your case. I have better encouragement about you concerning the things that are going on in your life, things that accompany salvation. We don't want you to be lazy. We don't want you to keep pressing on in the Christian life. We want you to keep running. And we want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And then he gives us an example, Abraham. So that's the link. We're going right from 12, verse 12 to verse 13, for when God made his promise to Abraham. Right. So... You just mentioned Abraham, and the text mentions Abraham. What aspect of Abraham's experience with God does the author hold up to the Hebrews as an example for them to imitate? Well, this is talking about that great and dreadful day when God had commanded him to take his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved, and offer him up as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And so Abraham uh, gave us an incredible example of deeds that come from faith, which James picks up on. Uh, in James chapter 2, Abraham was uh, vindicated, we could say, justified as uh, one translation, by his works. In other words, his faith was proven genuine by his obedience. And so he obeyed. There's no sense of turning back. There's no murmuring on his part. Uh, but it must have been an anguishing time. And so he offered his son, and or was about to, he had bound him up, had him on the altar, and was about to plunge the knife into his breast when the angel of the Lord spoke a second time and stopped him and said, do not harm the boy. Now I know that you fear God. It's an incredible statement. In other words, I had to see it lived out. But by your obedience, now I know that you fear God. And then the angel said, I swear by myself, the angel of the Lord, speaking on behalf of his heavenly father, I think this is the pre-incarnate Christ, I swear by myself, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love. And then he then repeated the promises. You'll have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as sand on the seashore. And you'll possess the gates of your enemies, you'll, the land. And then through your offspring, through Christ, ultimately all peoples on earth will be blessed because you have done this. So he says, I swear by myself. That's what he's talking about here. So what's the significance of, of God swearing by himself? Well, the author implies that the taking of an oath by God was meant to produce a certain effect in Abraham and through Abraham in us, to give us confidence. And so he takes a common example. When do people swear? And he says, people, men, swear an oath to confirm what they're saying, to give a sense of certainty about it. Because honestly, we're liars. <laughs> That is you what's know, implied. Swear yeah. on a stack of Bibles or swear on two stacks of Bibles. Like, I don't care if you swear. Swear on 10 million stacks of Bibles, you know. And Jesus actually urged us against that kind of language, saying, look, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Well, listen, if there's any being in the universe whose yes is going to be yes and whose no is going to be no, it's God. But he wanted to give us in our weakness, and that's what it is, in our weak faith, some inducements to confidence and so he says these words, I swear by myself. So he's taking a human way of expression and saying, I'm promising on oath that I will do this thing. God often does this. He goes the extra mile to make sure that we understand, you know, how much either he loves us or the, the, the guarantee of his, his promise. He, yeah. This is not the only time he does this. And so I think it no, shows just in just... the incarnation, we have him coming from heaven to earth. And one, one uh, him, him writer put it, stoop to our weakness, mighty as thou art. So I think in the incarnation, that's the ultimate way he stoops to our weakness. But here in this language, he lowers himself to swear an oath. He shouldn't have to do that. He never lies. Um, but he does swear the oath. 
So why is Abraham's patient waiting to inherit this promise? Why is that important to the Hebrews? Well, we're supposed to, like Paul wrote in, in, um, in Romans 4, to follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. We're supposed to imitate him. And so Abraham was strengthened or encouraged by God's promise to him. Actually, we know from uh, Romans chapter 4 that it was on the basis of his belief in the promise, so shall your offspring be, that God declared him not guilty of all his sins. Abraham heard the promise and believed it. And that's the essence of our salvation. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Specifically hearing promise. Promise centered on the person and work of Christ. And so we're supposed to imitate our father Abraham who heard a promise and believed it. Mm -hmm. The author here is talking about this issue of swearing. And so he says, look, men swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all disputing or all doubt, we could say. We would hope. And it's like, wow, he must be serious. He's taking this solemn oath. You know, I swear by my ancestors. I swear by the, by the blood of my mother. I swear. I mean, who knows what, what swearing they do, they, they, these ornate oaths. So that's what we're used to in the swearing world. God, stooping to our weakness, swears. But he can't swear by anyone greater than himself because there is no one. And so he uses this language, I swear by myself. Because you have done this, I will keep my promises. Now, there's an interesting detail in the text. It says, so Abraham, having patiently waited, it says, obtained the promise. But later in Hebrews, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. And so did he obtain this uh, before he died, after he died? Is this kind of the, the final declaration on Abraham's life? What is this? Well, in the text, it says, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So we know that, that there's, if you look at Genesis 22, there's three things promised. Many descendants, descendants like the stars and like the sand, possessing of the land, and through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. He began to receive the first. He did not receive the other two, but only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, right. as the author will say later in Hebrews. So we know that he died in faith, not receiving most of the promise. So we have to say that what he did receive, waiting patiently, he received um, you know, Isaac originally, because in Genesis 15, he had no heir. But uh, was it Eliezer of Damascus was his heir. So he waited patiently. I think he was 75 at that point. So he waited another quarter century. So I think the waiting patiently here would refer to the beginning of his descendants. Beyond that, you're right, he doesn't get the catalog of promises before he dies. Yeah. How's that really helpful for, you know, both the Hebrew Christians undergoing persecution and, and frankly, us who uh, live a life of faith and many of the promises we will not see with our physical eyes, but we're waiting for the, for the future cities. How's that encouragement for us? Sure. I mean, we have a long way to go. If we live a normal life, um, you know, I could live in, with a normal lifespan another 30 plus years. You could, you know, live more than that. And that's a long time. We have to run this race with endurance, we're told. It's a marathon. And so for us, it seems like a long time. Now, God knows it's, it's a drop from the bucket of eternity. Um, but we don't have that perspective. You know, days sometimes seem very long. And so we have to endure. And there's some really hard days sometimes. Maybe you might spend a day in the ICU with a loved one. Uh, could be a, a child that's going through a life-threatening accident or illness. And you're praying to not have to face that terrible trial of burying a child. 
or maybe the child actually does die, and you have to endure that patiently. And the things that have been promised to you don't seem very present. You know, you don't have the resurrection body yet. You don't have the resurrected world, the new heaven, the new earth. It's just words. It's literally just words. It's words printed on a page. It's words you hear in a sermon. It's just words, and you have to wait patiently. And so it's that time lapse. You know, if, if, if there are five minutes between when you're justified and when you see God face to face and are glorified, you don't need to wait patiently. But if it's 50 years, from our perspective as human beings, you have to wait patiently. So we have to imitate that long waiting, uh, similar to Abraham's. It was, like I said, about a quarter century he had to wait. He's about 100 years old when he finally got his son. And so you just have to wait. And it seems like that waiting tends to vitiate the promise. It's like you said you would do this and nothing's happened. Moses went through the same thing. He didn't have as long to wait. But... He came to Egypt to say, let my people go, and nothing good happened, only bad things happened. And so very impatiently, Moses says back to God, you've not delivered your people at all. <laughs> Bricks without straw. I mean, what's going on here? You've got to wait. God has a timetable here. So there's this need for waiting patiently. The question is, how do you wait? What's going on in your soul while you wait? Are you waiting filled with despair and hopelessness? If so, you will do no good works for Christ. You will do no good works. You, you will not live a life worth living. You'll not live an overtly, clearly Christian life. No, you need to do better than that. You need to be radiantly filled with hope so that people who are without hope and without God in the world will ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Like it says in First Peter 3, be ready. But if you're not evidently, obviously hope-filled, you won't do that. So you'll live a miserable life. So this is why clinging to the promises of God is so critical for us. Yeah, it matters very much how we run this race with endurance. We need to run, like, metaphorically and spiritually with a smile on our face, confident that we're going to win the gold medal. It's just a way that you, way that you play, the way that you run. You're just so confident of final victory. Right. Now he says... Um, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So first, can you answer the question, like, what are the two unchangeable things? And then maybe you could go into this notion of us fleeting for refuge and having a strong encouragement. Oh, there's so much in these verses. Uh, the two unchangeable things are the promise and the oath. That's what I think. Uh, God speaks the promise and confirms it with an oath. Or in the order, maybe, I swear by myself and then speaks the promise. But he had already by then spoken the promise. So he just repeats the promise in Genesis 22. And so those are the two unchangeable things. It is impossible for God to lie, period, because of his character. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. It would be dark for God to lie. He doesn't lie. Everything he says is the truth. So he's just revealing his character, and his words are unshakable. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. So the idea is this unshakable foundation, like Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The, the image is one of something that's absolutely unshakable. It's going to outlast the present heavens and earth. And so you get a sense of absolute confidence. Now, if you look at the language, first of all, men swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguing or disputing. That would be the opposite of the mental state or spiritual state he wants them to have. That's the state of doubt. 
back and forth. Is it true? Is it not? Is it true? Is it not? James calls that person a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So God's swearing should put to end all doubt. All that doubting and disputing should be settled. And why? Because the text says you are an heir of what has been promised. We're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And so if you're an heir, that means you're going to get something incredible if the one who put you in his will had the estate to back it up. Or in another image, the one who wrote the check has the money in his account to cover it. And, and how dishonoring would it be to find out that you are named as, as an heir in a will that was spurious and false, a false document, which did not stand up in probate. You know, you, it, it was a piece of, of fraud. And the one that you trusted and you had all these hopes, they're dashed because the person who wrote them had no great estate or really didn't name you as a false document. God isn't like that. You are an heir with Christ of heaven. And he's saying, you need to understand that. So God wanted to, to speak to you as an heir. And he wanted to give you a sense, as the text says, that of the unchanging nature of his purpose toward you. I love that phrase. That means before the foundation of the world from other texts, he had a purpose for you. And that is that you would be holy and blameless in his sight, that you would be conformed to Christ, that you would be in a resurrection body in a resurrected world. That's his unchanging uh, purpose. And he wants you to know how unchanging. I've never changed my mind about you. I made up my mind about you before the foundation of the world, and I have never changed my mind. And you are an heir of that, but I want you to know how certain it is. And the reason is you're very changeable. You make promises and you don't keep them. You're surrounded by a changeable world with changeable people who make promises to you and don't keep them. And people are constantly evolving, constantly changing. It's a shifting, changing, constantly evolving world. And we need to have a confidence that, yeah, that's true, but God's word never changes. And this is a sure and certain hope that we have, unchanging purpose. So he confirmed all of this with an oath. So he confirms all this with an oath, and it says to, the text speaks of it producing a hope, mm. you know, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Um, so, and, and the author says he wants us to have a strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope. Yeah. So then how, just practically, how do we Christians um, hear the promise of God and stir up this mm. hope in our lives that, that acts as an anchor that, um, that we can run the race well. How do we do that? Yeah. Yeah, I want to get into all of those things, the idea of the anchor. Um, and I love the idea here. First of all, let's talk, I'll go to the, to the question you're asking of how can we do this. First of all, just know what it is. Hope is a feeling. It's a sense. It's nothing more, nothing less than that. But it's a sense of the mind and of the heart that dominates that the future is bright, that the future is beautiful, and that you're excited about the future and pleased about it. That's what hope is. I can't wait for the future. I can't wait for tomorrow. I can't wait for next year. I can't wait for the rest of my life. I can't wait for eternity. And I think it's so vital for us Christians to study hope and understand it. So one of the practical ways that we become filled with hope is just know what it is and know what types of hope there are. I would say that there are categorically three kinds of hopes. They're essentially the same. The basic thing is future is bright. But I would start with eternal hope. In other words, my eternity is secure. I'm looking forward to eternity in heaven. And then secondly, I would say, stepping back from that, long-range hope. I'm looking forward to the rest of my life, from this day until the day I die or Jesus returns, is going to be a life well worth living. I am looking forward to it. I want to live the rest of my life. 
and that includes good works that God's gone ahead of me to prepare in advance that I should walk in them, uh, and anything else God wants to give me. My life is worth living, and I'm looking forward to it. And then short-term hope, like looking forward to later tonight. You know, we got a, a party at my home tonight. We're going to host some people coming over. I'm looking forward to that. Well, non-Christians don't have eternal hope. And they don't really have long-range hope. Their hope may be based on worldly dreams and aspirations. And they know how uncertain they are if they're honest. They don't know that they're going to succeed in business. They don't know that they're not going to get injured, even if they're the best in the world at their event. They might have a, a severe injury before the Olympics or something like that. They don't know. And then, the, so they generally live day to day. They make it to the top. They can't stay there. They can't stay there. It doesn't satisfy them, etc. And so we Christians should be filled with all three kinds of hope. Eternal hope first. In Christ, we're going to heaven. Secondly, long-range hope. The rest of my life is worth living by the power of God. And then I'm looking forward to today's version of it. I'm going to be faithful today. So that's what hope is. So then what we, we do is we say, okay, are there any promises that cover all three? There actually are. Uh, the eternal hope, the very thing we're talking about, that when we die, we're going to be with God in heaven. There's so many promises, such as, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. There, there's a promise. So bank on that. Or here's another one. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. There's a promise. That's a future statement. It says will. It's about the future. So I'm going to shine someday. The body that is sown, it is sown in, in corruption, it is raised incorruptible. And all of those things in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection body. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in natural body, raised in spiritual body. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. That's, those are promises for me. That's what I'm going to get. That's my resurrection body. So my eternal hope is secure. Then long-range hope, are there any promises that cover from now until the day I die? Yes, end of this book. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So that's pretty good. Or surely I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And many other such promises. Um, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We have confidence in that because of the resurrection. And then what about the rest of today? Well, the rest of the today is I can walk in the good works that God's prepared for me and they're worth doing. There's so many promises to cover. So practically, how are we filled with hope? Cling to the word. Trust in the word. Remember who it is that spoke it to us. God never changes. He cannot lie. His word is unshakable. That's where our hope comes from. Now, what about this language of the inner place behind the curtain? This brings up tabernacle and temple imagery sure. where the Ark of the Covenant was yeah. behind there. But what's the connection here with this hope that enters in the inner place behind the curtain? And it says where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So where's the author going with this? Well, it's a fascinating image. You know, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, which enters the inner sanctuary. So you almost get the feeling like I'm not a nautical person, but like of a ship. Uh, a ship master, a captain, casting the anchor into the great unknown, the sea. You can't see below the sea, but you're hoping to find a rock down there that won't move, I guess. I mean, that's my image of an anchor. It drags along the bottom of the harbor until it finds something that won't move. And so what that does is it, cre it creates a stable base for the ship so that with the ebb and flow of the tide, the rise and fall of the waves, it's not going to get swept out to sea. Remember the earlier image that we had of drifting away from Christ. And so if you have an anchor, you're not going to drift away. And so this hope is an anchor that goes behind the veil. So in the same idea, we kind of cast the anchor into the great unknown, into the invisible realm. And that anchor is secure and strong. Imagine uh, an anchor made of silver or gold. It'd be worthless. 
The reason for that is like, well, it's worth a lot of silver and gold, but it's not worth much as an anchor. Why? Because precious metals are soft. And so if you had a golden anchor, it's not going to hold any. I mean, the slightest movement, ebb and flow, will bend the hook of the anchor and, and you'll be pulled away. So you need uh, a steel anchor, something that isn't going to move at all. And so that's the image we have here, that this, this is a solid anchor. It's not going anywhere. But the image here is we have fled to take refuge. It's the same thing of why you need an anchor. There is danger here. There's spiritual danger. The world of flesh and the devil are assaulting us all the time. And then just providential dangers, things that happen, like happened to Job. You know, the death of loved ones that can be an assault on our souls, can get us discouraged. Or, or afflictions. We could be chronically ill. There's some people that really struggle with hope because they're sick day after day. They feel pain every day. Or they have a terminal illness like ALS or cancer or something else. And they know that the prognosis for them is very dark. They're likely to die from this illness. And so how, do, how can they be filled with hope? And so there, is a, there are forces at work pulling us away from, from Christ. And so this, this hope is an anchor that keeps us solidly connected to Christ. Well, the idea here is that this anchor on a chain is cast behind the veil. And we don't see, we've not seen Jesus, we don't see the veil actually. But the language, as you yourself said, is of the sacrificial system. Jesus went before us. He's our forerunner, the text said. And he goes before us and offers his blood on our behalf, clears the way for us so that the one coming behind him who comes in is welcome in the inner holy of holies, which we'll talk about later, but where only the high priest could enter. And so Jesus went before us as our forerunner. He's our great high priest. He's offered his blood on our behalf, and we therefore have a sure and certain hope based on the finished work of Christ that we will never be swept away in the wrath of God. Amen. Now, the chapter concludes with him saying that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yes. So we've, we've gone full circle, full circle. and we're back, back in Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Yeah. I'll save questions for Melchizedek for next time. Yeah, we'll have we a, get whole a whole chapter. chapter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, just the idea of Jesus entering for us, and, and it's just so, it's so helpful. And I can't wait, uh, if God wills and lets us live, I can't wait to walk through chapter 7 and talk about Melchizedek. So it's yeah. exciting. Do you have any final comments on this section and just the, on the, the fidelity of God's unshakable promises? Well, I actually want to go back to the question you asked me just a few minutes ago. What are practical things we can do so that we can be filled with hope? I think just start with this. It is essential for us to be filled with hope. It is vital for us to be filled with hope. You should be radiant with hope. Every day you should think the future is bright in the hands of God. Now, when you understand that, you know that the future will involve, in this world, pain. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus said. I have overcome the world. Isn't take heart the same as be filled with hope while you go through it? I think so. And so, for us to, to be filled with hope, to be confident that whatever happens, we know that our anchor is going to hold, like this solid rock. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. All other hopes are sinking sand. 
So the idea is, is he, our, our anchor holds within the veil. No matter what high and stormy gale attacks us, our anchor holds. We're going to hold firm to Christ. But even better, he's going to hold on to us. And so he's never going to leave us or forsake us. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make it. So be filled with hope. And what you do practically for that is read the word, feed on this, pray over it. Say, oh God, take these promises and drive them into my soul. So there's iron in my soul that I don't yield quickly like a soft anchor. But I, I'm strong in Christ. Amen. Well, that was episode 14 of the Two Journeys podcast in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time and we'll talk about how the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Aaronic priesthood and Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.